This week, I visit a farm to ask how to make livestock more sustainable. What have you got to say for yourselves? And what does this? Taking her in my arms, I should declare my passion and take her in my arms. Have in common with this. We hear how flies woo too. Plus how to convert noisy radio signals into easy-to-measure lasers. This is the Nature Podcast for March the 6th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. I shall declare my passion and take her in my arms. I shall declare... I shall declare my passion and take her in my arms and take her in my arms. Oh, how romantic. That's I shall declare my passion from Handel Xerxes, a testament to the art of courting. But it isn't just humans who woo. Sound seductive? That is the courtship song of the male fruit fly. Marla Murphy from Princeton University and her colleagues have been investigating the ins and outs of the fruit fly's buzzy charms. Their research shows that flies can be quite creative suitors. Here's Marla with an insider's look at the art of seduction, fruit fly style. Flies actually produce their songs with their wings. They vibrate one wing at a time, and the male stands very close to the female, so it's an intimate love song. The songs the males produce are actually quite variable from one bout to the next. So each song bout lasts about five seconds. And uh, each time a male produces it to the female, it's not quite the same from one rendition to the next. And this is kind of different from uh, crickets or grasshoppers that many people uh, would have heard chirping in their, in their homes, for example, or even many songbirds. And so it allowed us to ask the question, where does the variability come from? Why is it that these songs are variable? We measured uh, the songs the males produced simultaneous with the sensory environment of the flies. And this was um, really kind of a novel approach. And what we found was that um, these variable songs could be well predicted by the sensory environment of the male. That is, the male's really paying attention to what the female is doing. He's judging how far away she is from him and how fast she's moving. And based on this visual information he's getting from her, he adjusts his, the content of his song accordingly. So he has two versions of the song he can sing, one we call pulse, and the other we call sign. And he switches between these modes very quickly on timescales of tens to hundreds of milliseconds based on the information he's getting from the female. He's fine-tuning his song um, based on what she's doing. And this was quite surprising to us. 
Once caught it in this fashion, once caught it in this fashion, who could resist my charms? Who could resist my charms? The canonical view of song production across the animal kingdom is that it's what's called a fixed action pattern. So males will trigger their song or uh, a number of courtship behaviors in response to seeing or smelling or tasting a female. And it's thought that the program for the song, um, you know, the script for the song is embedded within the nervous system. So there's a template for it and whether that template is learned or innate. Um, and all the animal has to do is trigger the template and make its song. And um, what we found in contrast to that view is that in, in flies, the flies are really sensitive to what the female is doing in real time, and the content of the song actually comes from the sensory environment, uh, not just from the program within the nervous system. What's coded in this fashion? Drosophila males that don't have wings, for example, so they're mute, they can't make a song, uh, it takes them a lot longer to mate with the female. And similarly, if you remove the ears of the female fly um, so that she can't hear the song, uh, she also takes a lot longer to mate with the male. So these songs seem to be required um, for the mating, but they're not absolutely essential, and that is because um, the flies have other sources of sensory information, that is, they um, use pheromones, uh, for example, to sense their mates, and song is, is one of the pieces of sensory information they use during mating, but it's not the only one. I shall declare my passion and take her in my arms. I shall declare, I shall declare my passion. I've been working on flies for a very long time, for most of my career, and I, of course, think they're capable of much more than uh, people give them credit for. So uh, I imagine there are many behaviors that are going to be more complex and appreciated. At the same time, I think this study also shows that behavior in general might be more predictable than we had appreciated. That is, the sensory environment may exert a larger influence on behavior. And in most studies, we just don't measure the sensory environment of the animals. We don't take it into account. But if we were to... Uh, we would find that, in fact, the sensory environment exerts uh, a large effect on behavior. Take her in my arms, and take her in my arms. Taking her in my arms, I shall declare my passion, and take her in my arms. That was Marla Murphy, accompanied by the dulcet tones of some male fruit flies and nature's own Leonora Dawson Bowling, singing I Shall Declare My Passion from Handel's Xerxes. The package was produced by Noah Baker. Still to come, how to make noisy radio signals easier to detect and ways to make livestock more sustainable. But first, here are the research highlights read by Noah Baker. The oldest known pieces of cheese have turned up in Chinese tombs nearly 4,000 years old. Researchers from Germany and China found the lumps of cheese tucked around the necks and chests of mummies in a cemetery in Xinjiang. The team identified the cheese as kefir cheese, made by curdling milk with bacteria and yeast. 
the cheese is the earliest sign of extensive cattle and goat herding and milking in the region. Until now, studies of the origin of cheesemaking has relied on analysing milk fat in pottery shards. Find the paper and a photo of the cheese in the journal Archaeological Science. Parasitic worms assemble themselves into tall towers to reach passing beetles. Nematode worms depend on finding a new host for their survival. Researchers in Germany found young Pristionchus nematodes secrete a waxy substance that they use to stick themselves together. The team dubbed it nematoil. The sticky wax enables up to a thousand tiny worms to congregate into tower-like structures up to one centimetre in height. The whole tower waves to maximise the chance of the worms attaching to a new host beetle. Find out more in Nature Chemical Biology. Radio waves are all around us. Your laptop uses them to connect wirelessly to the internet. Doctors use them to see inside the body. They even pervade the universe as the radiation left over from the Big Bang. Often the radio waves we try to pick up are very faint, and receivers have to boost them before they can be read out. But amplifying the signal also introduces noise, random fluctuations that distort the signals and limit the sensitivity of detectors. Now physicists from the University of Copenhagen have created a new type of detector which avoids the need for amplification. It uses laser light to detect faint radio waves and converts them directly into signals that can be sent down optical fibres. Eugene Polzik spoke to Lizzie Gibney about the system, which could pave the way to a new generation of ultra-sensitive devices. People have been developing wonderful electronics to detect and then amplify tiny signals. And yet, if we want to detect the faintest signals or just to increase the sensitivity of existing devices, we need to cool our amplifiers down to cryogenic temperatures and to reduce their noise in this way. So what's the problem with noise and what is noise? The fundamental noise of any amplifier or receiver comes from thermal fluctuations of atoms, electrons in the device. Beyond this noise, it's very difficult to detect any signals. So this limits the the sensitivity of our detection? Exactly. So what's your approach? What have you done differently? We have replaced the usual electronic amplifier for a faint signal with what we call an optomechanical detector and amplifier. So here is how it works. The radio wave comes into the antenna and stimulates in the antenna the current. Those moving charges then go into a capacitor, and this capacitor contains a nanomembrane. Then the moving charges act on the nanomembrane and cause it to oscillate in tune with the radio wave signal. But the membrane at the same time acts as a little mirror. So we send the laser beam on this membrane mirror, and when it reflects, then we can read out the motion of the membrane on the laser beam. And in this way, we convert the radio signal through the mechanical oscillation of the mirror directly into the laser beam. 
So using this system, including your, your membrane, you convert very faint electrical signals into optical signals. Do you not need an amplifier at all? Exactly. In principle, we don't need an amplifier. This laser signal can be directly fed into a fiber optics connection line. And how sensitive is this system at detecting radio waves? At the moment, we can detect about 10 to 100 picavolts per second. That means 1 over 10 billion of 1 volt. So it's really tiny. In what kind of systems would we need to detect such a tiny voltage? If we're talking mobile communications, then, of course, the higher is your sensitivity, the further away you can be from the transmitter and the better you can receive your signals. In more scientific world, the applications can be, for example, in the detection of the faint microwave cosmic background radiation. And in the medical world, our system may be useful for the magnetic resonance imaging where it can replace the current cryogenically cooled amplifiers and detectors. So what are the advantages of this method over the standard way in which we detect radio waves? First of all, the method does not include any need for cryogenically cooled amplifiers. It works with room temperature devices. Already at the present stage, we are quite competitive with the state-of-the-art electronics, and uh, we see a clear way to become maybe 10 or even 100 times more sensitive. And in addition to this sensitivity, in our method, we directly convert the radio waves into the optical signal, which can be then sent through the fiber optics, whereas in the present devices where the signal is amplified electronically, if you want then to send this signal over long distances using the fiber networks, you have to add additional complication, additional layer of transmitters and modulators to the system. That was Eugene Polzik talking to Lizzie Gibney. Richard van Norden will be joining me for the news chat shortly, but before that, Kerry's been down on the farm. Meat production worldwide is set to almost double by 2050 as nations become wealthier and demand more animal protein. At the same time, some commentators in richer nations wring their hands over the environmental consequences of their chili con carne. So is it really possible to feed our meat habits sustainably? I've come to the southwest of England to Bristol University's vet school to explore these questions with the help of some cows and Michael Lee, who's at Bristol University Vet School with me, and John Tarleton, also affiliated with Bristol University. Their team have written a comment piece about sustainable livestock. Uh, thanks for hosting me, gentlemen. Welcome, Kate. You're welcome. On the face of it, Michael Lee, coming to you first, meat production, at least in the industrialised world, it doesn't look very sustainable, does it? Um, We have to move towards sustainable intensification, so we have to look at systems which produce very high quality animal products in a sustainable manner. And the way to do that in terms of livestock associated with ruminant production is maximising production of forage based systems. We need to be able to use ruminants in the way that they evolved. 
maximise grazing and then using byproducts as well from other industries. So, you know, if, if you've got a biscuit farm nearby which has waste, it's actually using those resources into feeding systems. We need to reduce the amount of imported soya and cereals um, into uh, ruminant systems, which is not sustainable. In other words, and very simply, less human food into animal feed. In the developed world, I suppose especially, we are using things like soy to feed pigs or cows. We, we are, and, and it's not saying that certain systems are wrong in any sense. It's about developing the correct system for the correct environment. If it's sustainable to grow soya and cereals and feed them to dairy cows, then fine. But we're moving to a world where it's not going to be sustainable to grow soya and cereals and feed them to dairy cows. And so therefore we have to move towards looking for alternatives. So you guys aren't saying to people, as well-known commentators around the globe have been doing, guys, don't eat any more meat, it's bad for the environment? No, certainly not. We're saying we need to maximise the quality of the meat we produce. Think about how much we consume. We're certainly consuming too much um, meat products or poor quality, low quality meat products. Red meat, a small amount of red meat, can be beneficial for human health. Uh, in terms of its micronutrient content, great source of heme iron and also essential amino acids. And in the developing world, this is extremely important for nutrition. But here in the developed world, we need to look about how much we consume, reduce the amount we consume, uh, but increase the quality of that consumption. Now, John, here on the farm in uh, Bristol University Vet Services in Langford in, in the glorious Somerset countryside, the cows look very healthy, as you might expect. The calves are in the peak of uh, physical fitness. But what happens if you take a cow like this and you put it into a new system, say you took it to Kerala? The cattle that we typically see here, which is the Holston Vision cattle, have been developed in, in Europe and in North America uh, to cope with the climatic conditions that prevail in those countries. Uh, as well as that, we actually improve their environment by providing them with nice flat surfaces to walk on, comfortable bedding and things like this. If you take those cows out of that situation, they may not be able to cope with the, the heat uh, of that environment. Um, similarly, if you have uh, the, the um, Holstein Friesian cattle on uneven surfaces, very often they can develop lameness, which may also affect productivity and may ultimately lead to the animals needing to be culled. Certain cattle may be better in southern India than they would be in northern Europe and vice versa. All right, so we've, we've got a situation where we eat too much meat. We don't necessarily feed our livestock the right things. We don't necessarily keep them in the right environments to which their genetics are most, making them optimally suitable. How, in a system that seems so entrenched, especially here in the developed world, how do you go about changing any of this? It's, uh, it's extremely difficult and needs um, lots of different areas of science to come together um, and not just science or social science as well as economics and policy and the way that we're trying to approach this within our consortium is develop uh, global farm platforms so here within these farm platforms what we're looking at is the best system to produce animals in that current climate and conditions so we at the moment we currently have three farm platforms we have a, a subtropical uh, farm platform at Silent Valley in India. Um, we have a more uh, Mediterranean biome in um, Perth, Australia, called Future Farm. And then we have the uh, Rothamsted Northwick uh, platform in Devon. So we're looking at maximising productivity for minimal environmental impact. 
And how, if it turns out to be more expensive to implement the measures that you suggest, how are you going to sell that to Tesco? Well, it's about the cost of the entire system. If you drop yield, that's a drop, obviously, in, in output and profitability. But you've got to have a look at what other things have dropped with that drop in yield. If you drop vet fees or you drop the cost of imported feeds, then does that work out to be more profitable? So it's not just looking at yield, it's looking at the entire system. And I think one of the issues that we wanted to really raise was the fact that that formula is different in different parts of the world. What have you got to say for yourselves? Okay, well, all that remains is to thank Michael Lee, John Tarleton, and the cows, of course, for having me to the Bristol Vet Farm. Thank you. Thank Thank you for coming. News time now, and joining me in the studio is reporter Richard Van Norden. Hi, Richard. Hello. Now, you've been immersed in the world of batteries recently. Yeah, I've been diving into batteries to find out efforts to make batteries last longer and become cheaper. And you may think the lithium-ion battery couldn't be beaten. It's quite wonderful. It's transformed our mobile phones, our laptops and our electric cars. But it's kind of hitting a ceiling. I talked to chemists and material scientists. They think we can only get another 30% more energy into that same weight and same volume. So chemists have all these clever ideas to think of portable energy stores, portable batteries that fit much more energy in for the weight or the volume and are cheaper than lithium-ion. How long have lithium-ion batteries been the dominant source of energy? They've basically been dominant since they're introduced in the early 90s by Sony, and they quickly overwhelmed the other battery types, lead acid and nickel cadmium. These are still used, but lithium-ion is, you know, twice as good at fitting the energy in by weight. And cheap, presumably. Well, not that cheap, and and that's really one of the problems. Uh, A lot of people talk about the Tesla car, which has a battery pack made out of 7,000 lithium-ion batteries altogether. And unfortunately, we're talking about more than $500 per kilowatt hour um, for a pack. And that means that a battery pack can run into the tens of thousands of dollars. If you think how much a, a car costs, that's already more than the cost of many cars. So getting down that cost is really, really important. Okay, so light but not so cheap. What are the sorts of alternatives that scientists are thinking about? Well, I had a talk to the Joint Centre for Energy Storage Research, which won $120 million from the US Department of Energy to get a hub that would would do this. And they sort of pointed me towards some key ideas. Number one idea, in a lithium-ion battery, you have lithium ions shuttling back and forth between electrodes as the lithium ions go through an electrolyte in the middle. The electrons can't go, so they have to go around the outside, and that's what gives you a current. Now, if we could replace those electrodes, which kind of don't really do anything, they just hold lithium ions, if we could make the entirety of the electrode reactive, that would mean much more energy could be fit in per unit weight. So one idea is um, lithium sulfur. And here, instead of graphite holding lithium ions, you have a, a lithium metal electrode. It entirely uh, unforms and reforms as the battery discharges and recharges. And on the other end, instead of a a metal oxide electrode, you have an electrode made entirely of sulphur, which can pack in many more lithium ions than today's batteries. So it could uh, give us as much as five times energy by weight as today's batteries. But how difficult will those be to make? Well, this is the problem with all of this chemistry. It all works well once but you have to make it cycle back and forth thousands of times. And in this case, 
The chemical reactions involved mean that the electrodes quickly crumble and dissolve and the battery just stops working. Now, I talked to a guy called Elton Cairns at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and in lab tests, he's got batteries that cycle around 1,500 times, which is as good as you need, as good as today's lithium-ion. But the question is whether his laboratory coin-sized cell will really scale up to work for a commercial battery. And what about replacing lithium with other elements? Yeah, another idea is to replace lithium. Lithium is actually the lightest metal, so it makes sense to, to use it. But some people say, why don't we use heavier metals like magnesium? The point about magnesium is magnesium ions are more strongly charged than lithium. So for every magnesium ion that flows through the battery, you get two electrons. For every lithium ion, you only get one. So that doubles the amount of energy, the current you can get out for the volume. The problem is that magnesium ions, because they're heavily charged, they attract all these other things around them as they go through the innards of the battery. Um, and, And everything clings to them and they move really slowly like they're moving through treacle. So there's some fundamental work going on at the Joint Centre for Energy Storage Research, just understanding how this happens. Is it possible to find solvents and electrodes that magnesium ions can flow through at reasonable speeds? Otherwise, it's going to take you days to charge and discharge your magnesium battery. But, you know, all the big names, uh, Toyota, um, Samsung, they're all working on magnesium batteries. They're just not revealing much in public. And it sounds like these ideas are feeding into this need for renewable sources of energy. So, yes, in a car, uh, where are you going to recharge these batteries from is, is the question of whether the car will be running on renewable energy. Conceivably, you could charge up the batteries using solar power or wind power. Now, the other place you might want to use batteries for renewable energy is in the electricity grid, where you will need to store solar power and wind power when it's not windy or when it's night. Now, on the grid, you you don't need to worry about fitting in the energy by weight or by volume. It's all about getting the cost down. And lithium-ion batteries are used in big shipping container-sized boxes for the grid right now. But again, really, really expensive. So people are looking at some rather inventive ideas again. A guy called Donald Sadoway at MIT has this ingenious idea of liquid metals that sit on top of each other, sorted out by density, by gravity, And the metals just flow through a sort of salts in the middle, up and down. And these enormous boxes full of molten metal will be the battery for the grid, he thinks. It's being tested this year at a kind of prototype stage. Another idea is to use flow batteries in which you have enormous tanks of liquids that are stored outside of the actual battery and they flow in. When they meet each other and with the electrodes, ions flow and you get a current. And then that liquid, once it's used up, just flows out again back to the tank to be recharged. And you can make this outside tank as as big as you want. So you can have as much energy as as you can think of. And what's your money on? What do you think will be the biggest success? Well, I don't know what the biggest success will be, but I do like the idea of the liquid metal battery. It's kind of crazy. It works at 500 degrees, but apparently it's self-heating. But we'll just have to see. In the end, it comes down to these, you know, almost boring but very, very important engineering questions of cost and scale and size. So it's just going to have to be the proof of the pudding will be in the demonstrations. Okay, well, I guess only time will tell. Thanks, Richard. Remember, you can read Richard's feature at nature.com slash news. That's all from us this week. Next week, the medieval cosmologist who predicted the multiverse. 
To play us out, here's a little more from Nature's web production editor come mezzo-soprano Leonora Dawson-Bowling. She's the one responsible for taking the podcast and putting it online for you to hear. And she's sadly leaving Nature after this, her final show. Thanks, Leo, for all your hard work. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. And take her in my arms Taking her in my arms I should declare my passion And take her in my arms Once caught it in this fashion Once caught it in this fashion Who could resist my charms? Who could resist my charms? Once caught it in this fashion I declare my passion and take her in.